Gracious Father, we do thank you uh, for your word. And uh, we pray this day that you would give us ears to hear it. And we pray, Father, that you would move in us by the power of your spirit, uh, that we might uh, give our lives generously and sacrificially, wholeheartedly to you uh, and for the cause of your gospel. Uh, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, so I wonder if you're someone who uh, thinks about living for uh, about giving to God. Uh, perhaps you're here and you're not even a Christian. Uh, that, that's wonderful that you're here. Uh, but if you are something who already thinks about giving to God, uh, whether it be of your time, your money, or your energy, uh, what reservations do you have? Just to kind of think about it. What thoughts go through your mind that make you think, you know, uh, there's that opportunity to give more money or attend that meeting or join that ministry team, uh, but I'm not going to do it uh, because of these reasons. But as you think about giving to God, uh, what reservations do you have? Oh, I think there are all sorts of reservations, but when it comes down to it, often the core reservation is, is it really worth it? Like, is it going to make a, an actual difference? Uh, that, that was the big question last week, right? Is it worth living as a Christian? Or, or more specifically, is it worth living as a more radical or hardcore or sacrificial Christian? Bearing a cost for the sake of being a Christian. Because in Malachi's day, the people of Israel were not convinced of that. Not at all. And today we see that that affects their attitude to giving in all sorts of ways. Have a look. Have a look in verse 6. Uh, there in verse 6, we see God's character right up front. God says, I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Uh, so, so God says, it's only because of my unchanging love for you that you even exist. You see that? That you haven't been destroyed. Right? Why is that? It's because of verse 7. Right? Ever since the time of your ancestors, God says, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Right? Your entire history, God says, is one of rebellion. You guys are all over the shop. You're wandering from me every, all over the place. Yet God has never said, as we would have said ages ago, I'm done with you. He's never said that. Right? He hasn't said that because he doesn't change, you see. He's faithful, he's steadfast, he's unchanging in his love for his people. Now that's worth dwelling on for at least two reasons, right? but particularly as we come to this passage which is all about giving. Uh, the first reason it's important, uh, it's important to remember because God's unchanging love comes first in this passage. Notice that. God reiterates his unchanging love first. That's important if you're here today and you're not a Christian because you might be thinking, it's just as I thought, I've come to church for the first time ever in my whole life and the, and the pastor's talking about giving. Right? The church wants my money. Right? You might be thinking that. But, but we don't want your money, actually. Uh, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we want you to hear the good news about Jesus for nothing, for free. Right? These words here are for Christians. They're for people who have already experienced God's unchanging love, you see. That's God's message for Israel. Right? But still, uh, you, might be, uh, you might not be a Christian, but you still might think, uh, well, it might not be all about money, but it is all about what I do for God. Right? If I give enough, if I obey enough, if I serve enough, if I'm good enough, if I sacrifice enough, then maybe one day I'll be good enough and God will let me into heaven. Once again, no. 
But that's not what Malachi is saying, is it? He's not saying that God has been faithful to Israel because Israel has been faithful enough to him. Not good enough, sacrificial enough. That's not what he's saying. He's saying God has been faithful to Israel even though they've been repeatedly unfaithful to him. So any sacrifice that Israel makes for God, any sacrifice we make for God, is not to earn his unchanging love, but in response to his unchanging love. Out of sheer gratitude, thankfulness, joy, at our experience of his unchanging love. So God's character doesn't change. But it's very clear that he's calling his people to change, isn't it? Look, in verse 7, Return to me, God says, and I will return to you. This is the heart of Malachi's message, isn't it? All, everything he says in this, uh, in this book, uh, even the most confronting things he says, are designed not to just condemn Israel, but to convict them and to call them back to God. As usual, the Israelites have a question for God, don't they? How should we return? You know, what do you mean, God? What, what am I doing wrong? It's like each night when I, I, we do prayers with the kids. Um, we say, have you got anything to say sorry to God for? What do you mean, sorry? I didn't do anything wrong today. What do you mean? You've done 10 things wrong in the last five minutes. You can't, like, that's, that's Israel. What are we doing wrong? How should we return? So God says, well, he, he gives them his charge against them. This is what they've done wrong. In verse 8, Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. Right, that's his charge. His people are robbing him. And you can hear the astonishment in his voice. Oh yeah, it's one thing for one human being, one mortal, to steal from another mortal. But what kind of person thinks that they can get away with stealing from God? That somehow they're smart enough to, to rip off the creator of the universe and he won't notice. God says that's what Israel's doing. As far as I can remember, the only time in my life when I've been robbed was about seven years ago. I was working away on the computer, uh, checking some emails, and I got one of those uh, really legit-looking emails from the Commonwealth Bank. Or not from the Commonwealth Bank, actually, but, you know, at the time I was busy and, and not examining things as I should have. And so after being kindly, generously handing over some details, uh, of course, hundreds of dollars were stolen from our account. At the time, Gabby was in Korea. She was trying to access money. There's no money in the account. She's like, what's going on? Anyway, so uh, eventually we got most of that money back. Uh, but the point is, I just remember how angry I was. I did the sheer injustice of it. How dare someone steal something that belonged to me? That's how God feels about Israel. How dare they think that they can steal something that belongs to him? Oh, but once again, Israel plays dumb, don't they? How are we robbing you? you know? And God says, you're robbing me in tithes and offerings. Now, that, that, so we don't tend to use that language in our church. Uh, it might sound a bit odd to you, but uh, the Israelites knew all about this, right? Because in God's law, uh, he'd specified all sorts of different tithes and offerings that they had to bring. Uh, so uh, you can write these verses down. If you're really quick at flicking in the Bible, you can look them up. Uh, but for example, in Leviticus uh, 27, verses 30 to 32, uh, Moses says this to Israel. Uh, he said, a tithe, right? that's a tenth, 
of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, uh, belongs to the Lord. It's holy to the Lord. Whoever would redeem any of their tithe uh, must add a fifth of the value to it. Every tithe of the herd and flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod uh, will be holy to the Lord. So the Israelites knew this, right? It's written in black and white in God's law. Uh, They were to give a tenth of all sorts of things, grains, fruit, animals, money, uh, to the Lord. It belonged to him. It was holy to him. Uh, It's at least a tenth. Because actually, if you you add up all the different uh, tithes and offerings that they were supposed to bring to God, it's actually more than 20%. And the Israelites were, were told to bring these offerings to the temple, right? Because it was to support the work of the Levites, the priests in the temple. You can read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 12. I'm not going to read that. Uh, but the reason for supporting the priests in this way was when that Israel entered the promised land and the tribes were allocated different portions of land, uh, the tribe of Levi that the priests came from weren't allocated a portion of land. Right? They were to be supported by these tithes and offerings coming into the temple. And the priests, once those tithes and offerings were brought into the temple, uh, they didn't hoard it all the way for themselves. They distributed the tithes and offerings uh, throughout the land uh, to those who were most in need. Uh, the foreigners, the, those who were orphaned, the widows. So I mentioned Deuteronomy 12. In Deuteronomy 14, God says, uh, verse 28, At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns so that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, rather they've got no land, so that the Levites and the foreigners, the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied. Right, this is a centralised welfare system in Israel. Anyway, just that's a side note, but anyway. So, so God had been very clear about these tithes and offerings. It was all there in his law. And yet his people are not bringing these offerings to the temple. So what does that say about where they're at spiritually? Well, it tells us what giving always tells us. Giving reveals our heart. It reveals what is most important to us. That's why Jesus says, uh, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In the context of talking about money. So this, uh, the Israel's attitude to giving reveals their heart. And we've got to remember that the temple was the very centre of Israel's relationship with God. Uh, so you would think that if Israel believed that God was important to them, their greatest treasure, the most important thing, that they would be very generous in their giving to the temple. Uh, but they weren't. They were robbing God. Uh, because Israel, we heard last week, had grown cynical about God. They were bitter to God. They weren't even sure that God noticed their giving. Some of them were starting to think that giving money to the temple was a bit like pouring good money down the drain. Why bother? Why bother? Far better to keep it to yourself or at least give it to someone or something that actually makes a real difference in the world. Not to the temple. And God says, you're robbing me. You're robbing me of what belongs to me. Now, of course, course, as Christians, God doesn't mandate that we tithe. There's no law in the New Testament that says, you shall give 10% of this or that to God. But we are called to give generously and sacrificially as Christ has given to us, aren't we? 
We're called to support the ministry of our local church, to provide for the needs of one another, to love our neighbours, to support the work of the gospel throughout the world. We're called to give generously and sacrificially to these things. What does it mean to give generously? Well, I don't think it can mean giving less than 10%. There's no set amount. But I don't think it can mean giving less than 10%. I mean, if God told an Old Testament farmer who hadn't seen his ultimate display of generosity on the cross, or who was not filled with his spirit, uh, that 10% was kind of a minimum for giving generously to the temple. If that's what God said in the Old Testament, then I think it's pretty hard to argue that we're giving generously if we're giving less than 10%. We've seen God's ultimate display of generosity in the cross. In fact, in Romans 12, uh, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. Right? That is, uh, if you've seen, if, if you've truly seen God's uh, abundant mercy, his generosity to you in Christ, how much, Paul, should we give to God? Well, he says we should offer our bodies to God as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him. This is our true and proper worship. You get the line of reasoning. God says, in my son, I have given everything to you. I've held nothing back. So it just makes sense, God says. That's what the word is there. It's true. It's proper. It's just logical that you would give everything to me. It's true. That's, that's worship, giving that is pleasing to our God. So it's like lots of things in the New Testament, right? Yes, as Christians, we're not required to tithe. It's not a law, but it's not like the standard's been lowered. It's like all those places in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, you've heard it said this, Jesus says, thou shalt not murder. But I say, if you have anger in your heart, you've broken that rule. You're like, well, in one sense, the law's not there, but it's been intensified. That's what it's like with giving. We're not off the hook with this whole no mandating of tithing. We're called to give generously and sacrificially, and giving our whole lives to God. So perhaps we too could be guilty of robbing God. We've got to, we've got to wrestle with that. We rob God when, like Israel, we think that time and money to him, to the work of the gospel, uh, is time or money down the drain. Far better to spend it on myself, our own pursuits, or on some charity or political cause that actually makes a difference in the world. God would say, I think you're robbing him. Or more commonly, much more commonly, we rob God when we choose to give a bit to God, right? probably lots to God, even in comparison to other people, but not so much that it actually costs us. I'm sure we've done this. Or we work out exactly the right amount of time or money or energy that we can give without it, with, while maintaining our comfort. And then we give that amount and no more, you see. And we say we're giving generally. You might be giving a lot. Jesus gave a lot, but it cost him, you see. He felt it. It made a difference to his life. It's easy for us to sing songs about us loving God and, and that he's our, our greatest treasure. 
Uh, but in the end, it's the, thing was, the things we've got a limited amount of that reveal our hearts, our time, our money, our energy. I take energy, for example. I was talking to someone recently. I'm sorry I don't have lots of spoons, uh, just the one. Uh, but they introduced me to the concept of spoon theory. Right, the idea being that uh, each spoon uh, represents a specific amount of energy. You can look it up, spoon theory. Not now, but uh, at some point. Right, and of course, being something really concrete, like a physical object, uh, everyone, uh, it conveys the idea that all of us have a limited amount of energy. Some of us have lots of energy, some of us not much, but we're all limited. Uh, so every day we have to make decisions about how we spend our spoons. Uh, the person I was speaking, speaking to didn't have many spoons. Not a lot of energy at all. So I was really impressed, actually, that they'd chosen to spend some of their precious spoons on being at church. That's giving. Not because they had lots of energy, but because they had so little energy, but they gave most of it to God. Oh, what about you? Right? If God was to do an audit of your spoon drawer... Sorry, maybe I can't push the illustration too far. But you know, if God was to do an audit of how you use your energy, would he think you're giving generously to him or would he think maybe you're robbing him? Oh, what about time? I, I sometimes find myself answering people's questions. Uh, how are you going? And I say, oh, I'm busy. Well, I mean, sometimes I am busy. But the reality is all of us have 168 hours every week, don't we? Everyone has exactly the same amount of time. So if God was to do an audit of your diary, what do you think he would say? What would his report be? Bearing in mind that all of us make the time for the things that are most important to us. It's very rare that in your 168 hours that you don't do the things that you really want to do. Extremely rare. So if God was to do an audit of your diary, uh, what would he say? Would he feel that you're giving generously to him? Or would he say, you're, you're robbing me? And of course, then there is money. Right? Some of us have lots of money, some of us not much at all. We're, we're limited in the amount of money we have. And so, in many ways, our bank statement, our spending habits, are actually a good way of testing out what's important to us. Of course, I'm not saying that you should kind of stop paying your mortgage, that you should take the kids out of school, that we should all give up our jobs and, and go into full-time gospel ministry. I, I'm not saying any of those things. I'm not saying you should never take a holiday. There are going to be other big expenses of time and money and energy. There are. But let's not use that as a, as a cover for letting ourselves off the hook and asking the hard questions. If God was to do an audit of how you use your money, or more correctly, his money, you see, because we're just stewards. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. We're stewarding it. If God was to do an audit of that, do you think he'd say you were giving generously? Or maybe like Israel, he'd say, well, you're, you're robbing me. Many in Israel would have said that God was the, uh, the most important thing in their lives, but God says the reality is that your giving to the temple says something different. It says otherwise. So in verse 9, he says they're under his curse. 
You are under a curse, your, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Now, to, to understand this bit, and really the rest of the passage, uh, we have to understand two things about how the old covenant worked. That, that's God's relationship with the people of Israel in, the, in particular. The, the first thing we have to understand uh, is that God had said that under this old covenant, uh, Israel would experience particular blessings for obedience and particular curses for disobedience. Right? All that's unpacked in Deuteronomy chapter 28. I'm not going to read that now, but read the chapter. The first half, all these blessings for obedience. The second half, all these curses uh, for disobedience. Right, so, so here in Malachi 3 verse 9, God's telling Israel uh, that because they've disobeyed his law with regard to tithes and offerings, uh, they're under his curse. Well, that's the first thing we have to understand. Under the Old Covenant, particular blessings for uh, obedience, particular curses for disobedience. Uh, which leads to the second thing, uh, which is that under the Old Covenant, uh, physicality, right, material things, uh, were much more significant. Uh, a couple of examples. Uh, Israel was brought into the physical land of Canaan. That was important. Within that land, uh, Israel to worship God, was to worship God at a specific physical place, either the temple in Jerusalem. And in this case, uh, in this case, uh, uh, what am I trying to say? Uh, it's not surprising that the, I guess, the curses and the blessings under the old covenant also often took a physical form. That's what I'm trying to say. And so God says to Israel, if they gave generously in their tithes and offerings, uh, they'd be more prosperous materially. They'd have bumper crops, they'd uh, have lots of children, they'd have victory in wars, right? They'd be fruitful, but it'd be evidenced in physical terms. If they're stingy in their tithes and offerings, as they are being, they'd have small crops, struggles with having kids, defeat in wars. The, the economy would be in downturn. So God says, uh, you're struggling in material terms because you're under my curse and you're under my curse because you're disobedient. That's the train of thought there. Now at this point, we really do have to kind of press pause. Press pause because I want to be really clear of what this does not mean for us as Christians. Or what this does not mean is that suffering or tragedy or poverty in the life of a Christian is a sign of disobedience. It doesn't mean that. And it certainly doesn't mean that blessing or health or prosperity in the life of a Christian is a sign of obedience. It doesn't mean those things. Some people will tell you that. Uh, they're, they're the, so they preach the so-called prosperity gospel. Uh, prosperity preachers, it's absolute rubbish. Completely unbiblical. It's rubbish for two reasons, lots of reasons, but two main reasons. I'll give you the first one. The first is that even though in the Old Testament there was this idea of blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience, it was always for the nation of Israel, right? and not for every individual. You see, that's why in Psalm 73 the psalmist can look around and say, but, but evil people are prospering and righteous people are suffering. He's confused. I mean, he knows about this general rule, but it doesn't work out in the lives of every individual. That's why the book of Job's in the Bible. His friends are absolutely convinced, you must be cursed by God because of your disobedience. Confess something. Job's like, I haven't sinned. So even in the Old Testament, this is not an automatic thing for every individual. 
Uh, but the second and much more important reason why this is rubbish is that it just doesn't exist in the New Testament. And the reason it doesn't exist is because we follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Right? We follow in the footsteps of the one who was perfectly obedient and yet he was poor and homeless, he suffered greatly and ultimately he bore God's curse on the cross. And so as Christians, we must never think that God is cursing us because of our disobedience. That's rubbish. But sometimes there might be a connection between your sin and suffering. There might be. But we've got to be very careful making that link. It's certainly not automatic and it's usually not there. So we've seen God's character, his call, his charge, his curse on Israel. Now we come to his challenge. Look in verse 10. God says, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be not be room enough to store it. Right, that's God's challenge. Test me. Try it on, God says. Honour me with your tithes and offerings and I'll pour out so much blessing you won't know what to do with it. Once again, how does this apply to us? We're New Covenant believers, New Testament. Well, we've already seen, even in the Old Testament, this promise of prosperity was for the nation of Israel. Right? It's because of verse 12, actually. Look at verse 12. God wants the other nations around Israel to see their prosperity and say, your God is great. You see, God's purpose wasn't to make every individual in Israel rich, but it was missional. It was evangelistic. He wanted the nations to say, your God is better than our God, and so we're going to join you in praising him. In the New Testament, of course, mission looks very different to that. Where the, the indiv- oh, sorry, this is tangible, but the individual Christians are scattered out. Mission, mission is a sending out thing, not so much of an attractional thing in the New Covenant. Right? And in the New Testament, there's no suggestion that the people will see the prosperity of Christians and say, Jesus is wonderful. You just don't find that. If anything, Christians are, are described as being poor and suffering and persecuted, right? Like, like Jesus. So what do we do with this? This promise of blessing? Well, still, through Christ, God does say, test me. He does say that. He does say, give to me, sacrifice for me, and I'll pour out abundant blessings on your life. God gives us that challenge. Jesus does. In Mark 10, verses 28 to 30, Mark 10, 28 to 30, Jesus is speaking with his disciples and Peter says, "Uh, but Lord, we've left everything to follow you. We're in poverty, you see, we're homeless, we've got nothing. And Jesus replies, "Uh, truly I tell you that no one who's left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and for the gospel will fail to receive 100 times as much in this present age. Note that, it's blessings in this age, not just in heaven. In this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, uh, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Well, you hear what Jesus says. He says, test me. He guarantees that if you take up your cross and follow him, you will never miss out. 
You'll never miss out. In fact, you'll be blessed with 100 times more than you ever give up. 100 times more of blessing. What are, what are these blessings? Or if you've tried this, I, clear, I, I really don't think Jesus is saying that if you give up your home for him, you're going to get 100 homes. It's like some, some sort of crazy monopoly game. Like, you know, like... Right? He's not talking about that, is he? That these are the blessings that come from following him, knowing him, and being a part of his people. So, for example, Peter and his disciples have left their families to follow Jesus, but now, in being a part of his people, they've gained hundreds of brothers and sisters in Christ. There's been a cost, but there's a blessing, abundant blessing. Oh, they've left their homes to follow Jesus, but now through the hospitality of God's people, hundreds of homes are open to them. Some of you have experienced that kind of hospitality. Oh, so Jesus says, sure, if you follow me, uh, you'll have to make sacrifices that will cost you. I get that, but you won't regret it because you'll get back way more than you ever give up. Way more. And he calls us to trust him on that. To trust that it is worth living for him, giving for him, sacrificing for him, even in a radically costly way. Because if you do that, he'll bless us more than we could ever hope or imagine. That's what he promises. So what might that look like for us here at DPC? Well, for starters, I announced earlier that we've appointed Adam Humphreys as a second pastor. We want the blessing of seeing the work of the gospel continue to expand. If we want the continued blessing of seeing children know Christ and grow in Christ, at some point we'll have to expand the children's coordinator role, hopefully with Anna. We want to keep expanding our mission in the local area, right? another mainly music, kids holiday club, life explored, because we want the unique blessing of seeing lots and lots of people coming to know the joy of knowing Christ. We want to expand our deeds of mercy in the local community, to love our neighbours more thoroughly. We want to be able to give more money to our external mission and mercy partners so we can see the work of the gospel go uh, uh, bear fruit across the world. But the reality is, of course, that if we're going to do any of that, even half of that, it means more giving. Sure, new people will get on board and they'll give. But I suspect that it also means more giving for many of us. More time out of your diary. More energy out of your body, if if that's possible. Some of you are like, oh, I can barely stay awake. And maybe, maybe more money out of your account. And perhaps you think, but I just can't give any more. I can't give any more in any of those ways. And for some of you, that might be true. Some of you need to dial it back. But for others, you're saying that because you're afraid that if you do give more, you're going to miss out. That somehow, God isn't going to be faithful to his promise to you in Christ to bless you more than you could hope or imagine. Not materially, but blessings that really count. So I want you to hear these words from David Livingston, right, the first missionary to Africa. He, he said this once. He said, People talk of all the sacrifices I've made in spending so much of my life in Africa. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege.
anxiety, sickness, suffering, danger now and then with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment because all these are nothing when compared to the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. And then he says, I have never, ever made a sacrifice. He'd got Jesus' words, right? Jesus says, test me. Test me because you'll never, ever give up something for me or give up something, give something to me and be shortchanged. That'll never happen. In knowing Christ, you have, have received and will receive way, way, way more than you can ever give up. Sorry, I'm getting too excited. Right? So we can confidently give our whole lives to God. Romans 12, living sacrifices. And we can confidently work out what that looks like in the details. You know, sometimes we go, oh yeah, I'm giving my whole life to God. Yeah, but what about your diary? Oh, let's not concern about that. I just want to sing about how I'm giving my life to God. Oh, what about your bank account? Oh, let's not, be, let's not worry about details. Well, God in Malachi 3 is concerned about details. So let's have the courage to think through those details. What does it look like? when it comes to our time and money and energy, for us to give our whole lives to God. Let me pray. Uh, gracious Father, we thank you for your unchanging love for us, uh, that you are our Lord and you do not change. Uh, we confess that in so many ways we do change. We wander from you. Uh, we rebel in all sorts of ways. Uh, we thank you for your abundant grace and mercy to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. And in view of that mercy... We pray that you would move in us this day to give our whole lives to you as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you. For this just makes sense. You have given your all for us. Uh, help us to work out what that looks like in the details of our lives. Not just to say convenient words with our mouths, but to, to nut it out together, to do the hard work as individuals, as, as couples, as families, as a family of God. And we pray that as we take up your challenge, that you would indeed bless us with a hundred times as much, the joy of seeing way more people than we ever anticipated coming to know Christ and being brought to maturity in him. For his glory we pray. Amen.